Chapter 19 deals with going into religious and social regulations. And so verse 1, it says, Speak to the whole congregation of the Israelites and tell them you must be holy because I am Yahweh your God, am holy. Each of you must respect his mother and his father and you must keep the Sabbaths. I am Yahweh your God, make, um, do not make idols. So he begins to repeat many of the things that we've already learned about. And the reason he's repeating this is to make it clear that these are important. But this time he's doing the context of relationships and family and saying you must be holy because I am holy. This is going to get repeated multiple times as we go throughout. So we've already talked about these, and the, many of these we've already talked about in the book of Exodus or in the beginnings of Leviticus. So I'm mostly going to highlight the things that are different. And so in chapter 19, verses 5 through 8, he deals with the peace offering, how you must sacrifice it in the right and appropriate way. And the main thing he's dealing with here is that he reminds his people that all offerings are about worshiping him. Okay, you're not just pulling a lever on a machine to get something that you want. The all offerings are about having peace with God. And so he's coming at it. Remember before in the first seven chapters, he's mostly dealing with how the priest was supposed to do the sacrifice. Now he's dealing it with how you're supposed to see the sacrifice. And all sacrifices should be a worship act of worship to God. Verses 9 through 10 deal with gleaning in the fields. God basically commands them that they're not allowed to harvest the corners of the field. Why? Because that's for the poor. Basically, God says, this is the beauty of it. We know that just giving handouts to people all the time is not healthy for our society because they don't know, they don't appreciate what it means to work for it and to own it. Ownership allows you to have a greater sense of worth. When people get free handouts, one, they don't have to work for it, and two, that does not build up their self-confidence and their identity. But at the same time, there's no way that some of these people can even go out. Right? If you had, the only way you can plant crops is if you have a land, and the only way you can have land is if you have lots of money. So you have to have money in order to get by land to plant crops, but the only way you're going to have money is if you have crops, but you don't have those. So some people are legitimately poor for legitimate reasons. And so what God is saying is the reality they can't. So what he does with the Gleaning Institute, he understands that they need some kind of a handout because they literally cannot survive on their own, period. But at the same time, it makes them come to the field. They had to harvest it, and it gives them a sense of ownership. It gives them a sense of self-identity and worth and a sense of work value and ethic. And this is the most perfect sense of welfare because it's a welfare that makes people productive and gives them a sense of self-worth and identity, but at the same time acknowledges that some people do need a handout. Some people do need something. And so God is saying that really, ultimately, this is about for other people, taking care of people, dealing honestly. Verses 11 through 14 deal with don't cheat each other. Not only were they to treat each other with love, but they were to go out of their way to do it. And so they were to be honest. They were to help. Now, this one actually goes to the fact that it says, if your oppressor is in help, you should help him. And so this means that even your enemy, even the people who are attacking you, even the people that are hurting you, even the people who are intentionally going their way to humiliate you or whatever, you're to help them when they're in need. Because that's what God called us to be, was community. And so he really emphasizes now, what's interesting is he keeps here over and over talking about a neighbor, but he never, ever, ever mentions the word neighbor. 
And the reality is you read this and you get to the part where it should be because you should take care of your, and it doesn't say neighbor, and it doesn't say neighbor, and it kind of builds the anticipation because we're coming to Leviticus 19.18, and that is one of the most famous verses in the Bible. And so he goes on here in verse 17.18 and says, talking about love and justice and property, and he says, in verse 18, you must not take vengeance or bear a grudge against your children or your people, but you must love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. So the context is this. It's all in the context of when people oppress you, you should help them if they're in need. If you bear a grudge against somebody and you feel like you have every right to sue them or attack them or mistreat them because they deserve it and they probably do, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now that's much more powerful than what we've been taught. We've usually just been taught love your neighbor as yourself, but that's the second half of the sentence. The first half is if you have a grudge against somebody who deserves any kind of a way to have a grudge, like they've wronged you, and you have every right to be angry with them, you have every right to attack them, you have every right to get vengeance or justice, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's not just talking about the random neighbor or even the neighbor you know. He's talking about the neighbor you hate. And the idea is if you're supposed to love the neighbor you hate as if he's yourself, then how much more are you to love all those other neighbors? That should help you better understand the Good Samaritan even more because the Samaritan who is good to the Israelite is the person that he has every reason to hate. And you realize that once he tells that parable, that parable is a perfect contextual illustration of Leviticus 19.18. And the beauty of this is everybody loves themselves. The golden rule of Buddhism is be good to others. Okay, what does that mean? But everybody loves themselves. Even people who are depressed love themselves. They love themselves in a dysfunctional way, but most of the time all they can think about is themselves. And so the reality is we all love ourselves. This is why it's hard for people to commit suicide because they still, no matter how much they hate their life and want to end it, they still love themselves enough to not do it. And so the reality is everybody loves themselves and that becomes a criteria. If you would want somebody to get over their anger against you, and still do good to you because you can do that for somebody else. That becomes a foundational. And so this is what God has been building up to. This is what love looks like. This, this gleaning. Would you love it if somebody just took a portion of their profits and allowed you to come on their land and get something from them? Yeah, then do it for them. Would you love it if that you had somebody had every reason to hate you and get vengeance on you and decided not to? Yes, you would. So do that. And we usually think of the negative. We usually think, well, if I wouldn't want somebody to attack me or hate me or that. But what about the positive? Would you love it if somebody just randomly dropped everything for you that they don't know who you are and just like helped you out? Yeah, then do that for somebody else. All you have to think is, what would I really like somebody to do for me? And then God says, ding, 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 ding. That's what you're supposed to do for other people. And that's what's been very convicting for me a lot of times is like when you think like, oh, 
Why doesn't anybody like do this for me? Or why doesn't anybody call me up on a Friday night? Why doesn't anybody like my Facebook account? Okay? Well, maybe God is giving you ideas of what you should do for other people. Maybe you should go through Facebook and start liking people's comments. Because that's how you build relationships. That's how, not wondering why isn't anybody doing this for me. Woe is me. In fact, the first thing that people will tell you if you're struggling with depression is to go out and serve somebody. And so if you're sitting there all depressed wondering why somebody isn't doing, then there's your ideal list for what you should do for other people. So even your selfishness is giving you great ideas. And so God is stating this is what it's all about, is about loving your neighbor. Then he goes through, you should not live with your slave woman. Basically, the idea is just because she serves you does not mean that you own her. And this should be a very powerful statement that not only protects the idea of what God meant as slavery. A lot of times, remember we talked about this, it's easy to accuse the Bible of being pro-slavery. But if anything should really tell you that this isn't about owning people, it's this passage right here. This person is not your property. They work for you, and they provide for you in a certain way, but you're to provide for them. But by no means do you own them as property. You are not allowed to lay with your slave woman. That pretty much eliminates most of our founding fathers. Then he goes on and says, do not take the fruit of a tree before three years are up. Now, everybody can tell you, who works with trees and vineyards, that it takes a good three years for a tree to actually get to the point that it's producing good fruit. Now, what's the point here? What God is basically saying is don't get so greedy and so desperate for something that you want that you take it from the tree before it's truly ripe and good. Because what will end up happening is you won't end up getting what you want because it's not quite ready to be the sweet, ripe, or whatever you want. And you'll end up going to hurt the tree so severely that the tree will never, ever, ever be able to produce its maximum level. Now, trees were often symbolic of people and nations in the ancient world. And the metaphor here is don't take from people just for your own gratification. Because if you take it by force or at the wrong time, no matter what it is, then you're not really going to get what you want, which means you're going to be greedy for more, maybe even violate them even more. And they'll never, ever be able to be the person that God meant them to be because you're stripping them too much. And it could be anything. Emotions, finances, career, opportunities, future, whatever. And then God goes on in verses 26 through 29 and talks about the way that you dress. Don't shave your hair, priests. Don't tattoo your bodies, all that kind of stuff. What's the point? Is God forbidding tattoos today, even if it's the cross on your wrist, so that when you handshake people, they'll see you're a Christian? I don't know. I'm not even going to touch that one right now. What he is saying is this. Is God giving a universal rule that you're never supposed to shave your head? I just sinned against that one, okay? Um, or cut your hair too short. God required you to have a beard, long hair as a man. You weren't allowed to tattoo your bodies. Technically, a lot of us are violating this. 
So if you're okay with shaving your head today and not feeling like you're violating the law, then really what does God sing about tattoos? The point is this, don't look like the culture. Why is God forbidding shaving your head? Because that's what the pagans did. They actually did it as an act of identifying themselves with pagan gods. And this is what I talked about last week. We need to be students of the Bible, students of the culture, just as much as students of the Bible. Goth today is that dress all black in despair because I'm raging against the machine and the institution, that kind of stuff. The idea is be aware of how a culture is acting or dressing themselves and the message that that's communicating. If the message of that shirt or that kind of a hairstyle or that kind of a tattoo or that kind of a piercing or that kind of a wearing your hat backwards or whatever was no matter how benign the style is, what is the message that that style is communicating? If the message is not biblical, then you're not to do it. Not because turning your hat backwards, and I'm just using a benign example that means nothing, so I don't like make any judgments right now. But let's say turning your hat backwards means like I'm anti-God and anti-family. And everybody who's doing that is doing that for the reason, except for the people who are just oblivious because it's just cool to do, so they do it. Then what God is saying is, look, that's communicating a message. And if you do it, you're, you're now unintentionally communicating this, the same message. And everybody's going to look at you. And they're going to say, oh, you're that kind of person. You're like, no, I'm not. I just This is just a style. There's nothing sinful about wearing your hat backwards. But there is something about sinful about the message that that's communicating. Is it wrong to have your ear one ear pierced as a guy? I don't know. But back in the 80s, that was communicating something. The peace symbol communicates something that is not biblical. There are certain things that you need to understand that God is just saying, don't allow yourself to be misinterpreted. And so, and this is where Paul says, I will be a Greek to the Greek and the Jews to the Jews. Like, there's certain things I just got to give up because of the message it's communicating, period. And so this is one of the things we told when we were, I run a camp. I, tr- I trained high school kids to be leaders of a camp for an entire summer. Well, I trained for one week, but they end up leading the camp for a summer. And this kid came in with a lot of this goth-like style. And we said, you can't, you can't dress like that at camp. He was a great Christian kid, a great, a really mature, one of our top most mature Christian kids, but he had this goth style. And he says, I know, I don't agree with all that kind of stuff. I just really like the way this stuff looks and stuff. And we're like, look, we're not saying that it's sinful for you to wear that. We're not judging and condemning you. We know who you are. We think you're great. That's why you're here. But while you're at camp, you can't wear this stuff because the reality is there's a whole bunch of parents with kids that are coming to camp and they're dropping their kids off and they've got five or ten minutes before they leave the camp and everything that they see in that five or ten minutes is determining whether this camp is safe for their kids. And the way you look communicates something to them. And even if that's not an accurate thing for them to do, that they should not be judging you based on how you dress, the reality is that's what people do. And so do you love that family enough to give up your preference of style in order to communicate a message that your kid is going to be safe and is going to be loved here in my arms and you can walk away for the next week and know that everything's going to be okay? 
Or do you value your style so much that you're willing to make a parent leave with a huge amount of doubts and insecurity and fears and say, it's all your fault if you think that way. And that's really what God is saying here. What's more important to you? Your life telling the truth about God or your preferences and your styles and your behaviors and that kind of stuff? This is why our school says, look, we're not saying you can't do certain things, but there's certain things you shouldn't be posting pictures at. We're not anti you having a glass of wine, but never, ever, ever post a picture of you drinking wine on Facebook because everything gets reinterpreted and misinterpreted and taken out of context. And And there's a lot of things that people have done innocently, but out of context on a Facebook post, you've got to be very careful about how you post that. And it's all God is saying is you're a billboard, so speak, for God. And it doesn't matter whether the person is right and wrong for the way they're interpreting your style. The reality is they interpret it that way, period. And it's your job to be a good communicator. Where are we good listeners when Jesus came? Did we totally listen to every G- everything Jesus said? Did we totally interpret correctly what he had to say? Did we totally get on board with everything? Even today. Does that make him a bad communicator? No. But did he try very hard to communicate things in such a way that we would not misinterpret it? Yes. And that's what God is saying here. Then he goes on and talks about purity, honor, and respect. And in these verses of chapter 30, he deals with how the way they treat foreigners. And he makes it very clear this isn't just about loving your neighbor in your borders. It's about loving your neighbor outside your borders. And remember that you too were once a foreigner and that you should be loving these people in a very sacrificial way. Because when you're a foreigner who had no land, did you really like it when the Amalekites took advantage of you and attacked you? No. Would have been great if the Edomites and the Moabites would have let you pass through their land. That's coming later in Numbers. Yes. Then do that for other foreigners. If you were kicked out of your country because your government's trying to kill you and you have no home, would you really love it if a country opened its borders and brought you in, even knowing that there's a potential risk that there's people among you that might actually destroy their country? Yes. What do you do? Sorry for that political comment. (laughs) But it's not political. That's the thing. We've made so many things political, and they're not political. And it doesn't matter what party you're a part of. You're not a Republican. You're not a Democrat. You're a follower in the kingdom of God. And your political stance should be based on... Here's my biggest problem with our two-party system. There are some things that Democrats, that they protect and value biblically, that the conservatives don't. And there are things that the Republicans value and protect that the liberals don't. And they force you to pick somebody over the other. And they force you to say, I want to protect life because the Democrats are really good at protecting life in this area, but it means that I have to not vote for the Republican over here who protects life in a different way. And so either way, I'm not going to protect life when I vote for one party or the other. Because this isn't the answer. This isn't the answer to our country. So now God comes to chapter 20. And God forbids improper family worship. And so he goes through, you are to say the Israelites, any man from the Israelites 
or from the foreigners who reside in Israel who gives up any of his children to Moloch must be put to death. So first thing he starts with is child sacrifice. Before you think, oh, okay, but this is obvious. We don't sacrifice our children to gods anymore. Yeah, we do. We're aborting tons of baby to the gods of self-protection and interests. The babies that get in the way of my life and my future and my dreams. Or even as much as you want that baby, you're scared to death of raising that baby in the way that you're going to have to. And so you're sacrificing to the God of convenience because your life will be a little bit easier. And yes, maybe, maybe most of us have never had an abortion, but we also are sacrificing our kids for the sake of work. Some of us have spent way too much time or know people who are spending way too many hours at work on a weekly basis and their family is suffering for it. Or we sacrifice our family to hobbies. We're too busy doing this hobby all the time. Golf, sports, whatever it is. Computer, newspaper. And we're sacrificing our kids on emotional levels and that kind of stuff. And that's another reason. It doesn't matter whether mom and dad both stay together for the sake of the family. There's a lot of mom and dads who are emotionally absent in their kids' childhood. And so the reality is we're sacrificing our kids all the time. And if you want to know how you're sacrificing your kids, come to my high school and listen to my kids talk about their very good Christian parents and how they feel sacrificed all the time. And some of them are kind of illegitimate of narrow-minded, immature little kids, but some of them are pretty right on. And the reality is they see a lot more than what we realize. And they feel very, very much sacrificed, even in a two-parent home. And some of us are sacrificing our kids because we're desperately, vicariously living through them and forcing them into every activity that they could possibly be a part of that you're never together as a family in a meaningful way because you're too busy on the road or in a car going to some activity all the time. Because somehow you want your kid to be successful, mostly for your reasons. And I can go on and on and on and on because that's what it means being with a high school kid every single day for years. But we are sacrificing our kids. Okay, we are sacrificing our kids in many, many ways. And maybe we haven't shoved a knife into their chest, but many of them have knives in their chest. And they're going to spend their entire life trying to heal from those wounds through counseling and other ways. And they're going to bring that into their own families when they have kids. And some of you know that because some of you are the products of parents who sacrificed you for different reasons. And you felt it. And so the reality is God says, don't sacrifice your kids. They're the most important things that there are. And we're all guilty to certain degrees or others. The question is, do you realize what you tend to do and are you trying to make efforts to not do that? Because we're all guilty of it. We're all guilty of it. God forbids you go to mediums. Now you can say all you want in today where mediums are everywhere and there's like 50 million TV shows where somebody's going to a medium. But what's the big deal? It's just an alternate version of prayer. But what it really comes down to is you're going to something other than God. I, I don't even have to get into the Satanism or the occult or the destruction of it all, which I can. The point is that you're going to something other than God for answers. And that's why God forbids it. And so God once again goes back into sexual behavior and says, protect this at all costs. And that's basically the rest of the chapter. Chapter 21, he talks about rules of the priests. We're not going to go through this one in detail. But chapter 21 and chapter 22, he deals with priests, and mostly how the priests are to function and how the animals are to be treated. Now, the same 
purity and blamelessness that God expects of the animals is the same purity and blamelessness that he expects of the priests. If the animal is not allowed to have any physical defects, the priest is not allowed to have physical defects. They're to be pure in the same exact way. Because even though it's not a sin to have a physical defect, the idea is the tabernacle is supposed to be the most perfect place that there is. And it's supposed to be free of all sin. And we talked about this. Even though it's not a sin to have a skin disease, a skin disease is a result of sin in the world. And even though it is not a sin to have a physical defect that you could do nothing about it because you were born with it, the reality is you only have a physical defect because there's something wrong with the world and there's sin in the world and it's broken. And so what God is saying is that the people who are going to go in and make sacrifices to God to make you whole and clean and with animals, that they and the animals must be whole and clean. Because it's very hard to communicate a picture of becoming whole and clean when the people who are making whole and clean are not whole and clean themselves. And it might seem really unfair that God would say, if you're born with a birth defect, you're not allowed to be a priest. But that's no different than saying, because you're not a certain height, you're not allowed to be a, a, a 14 pilot. We're not saying you're a bad person because you're short. We're not saying that you're incapable of being a good fire pilot. We're just saying planes aren't built for your height. You're not allowed. There's nothing, no, it's kind of sad that if you couldn't have good eyesight, you couldn't serve in the military. Lots of people probably wanted to serve in the military. They probably could have been great soldiers. But the reality is it's hard to shoot people accurately when you can't see. (laughs) We're not saying that you're bad. We're not saying that you have no value at all. It just means that this doesn't work this way. Look, David was commanded by God to kill the Philistines. And when David said, I want to build a house for God, God said, you can't because you have too much blood in your hand. And David could easily have said, I have the blood in my hand because you told me to do it. But what God is just saying is, not all people are qualified to do all things. Look, being a man disqualifies me from many ministries. I can't go into a strip club and witness to girls. There are girls who go into strip clubs and witness to them, but they can There's nothing wrong with the fact that I'm a man. It's just I automatically disqualifies me from things. There's certain mission trips I can't go on. I'm married. I have three kids. I just can't drop them and go on mission trips all the time. A single person can be on missions all the time. This doesn't make me a bad, evil person and I'm not going on mission trips all the time. It just means I'm disqualified from that. Not because I've sinned, but because I made a choice somewhere else in my life. And so the reality is all God is saying is that you just can't do this because for whatever reason. But you have to trust that God will use you in other powerful ways. Because the thing that God is trying to communicate is wholeness. And that God wants you to be whole in every kind of a way. And one day he'll deal with sin that affects you in every way, whether it was your sin that made you that way or just the result of living in a crappy fallen world. And so these are the criteria that he goes with the high priest. It's just saying if the high priest is going to physically walk in and symbolically make you whole in every way, then he should be whole in every way too. And when he's not, then he's disqualified. Physically, relationally, sexually, whatever way. Disqualifies you. And so he calls the priest to a higher standard in that sense. And so that's what chapters 21 and 22 are about is making sure that the way that he functions with his wife, the way that he functions with his children, the way that he functions physically, and the way that he functions morally is all right. Does this make sense? And I'll be the first one to admit that certain parts of Leviticus feel drier than others. So, 
So if that didn't quite be as enjoyable as other places, there's nothing wrong with that. Don't feel guilty. <laughs>